morning we continue our present study titled Freedom, a study in the book of Galatians. And this morning we are in chapter 2. This is the center of Paul's biographical section of this letter. Uh, we looked at the first part of that uh, last week as he gives personal testimony of uh, his own experience uh, as part of the argument, as part of the instruction that he's giving to the Galatians and therefore to us. And we'll begin our reading in verse 1 this morning. But before we, uh, before we look at the word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come and pray that uh, by the grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring clarity to our minds of your message and understanding of the gospel. You would bring a clear understanding of our own hearts and our own lives and ways in which we wander or are prone to doubt or, uh, or worry, and that you would bring clear power of your gospel to bear on our lives. Shape us, Lord, that we might be more like Christ in accordance with your promise. We ask in the name of Christ with the confidence that it is what you have declared. So therefore we know that in your time it will be true. All things to you, all glory and power and honor. Amen. Galatians chapter 2 begin our reading in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The word of the Lord, may he bless us with understanding from it. I picked up a copy of, of David Liss's Whiskey Rebels because I was curious. Having lived in western Pennsylvania, I had heard of the Whiskey Rebellion, but I really didn't know much about it. I hadn't studied it in my history classes in school and recognized most other people hadn't. And so here's a book with the title, seemed to be uh, about the... Uh, about the incident and thought that I might be able to enjoy some recreational reading and gain some understanding as well. 
And while I read the book and enjoyed the book, what I came to recognize, what I also saw that the author had one time said, is not really about the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794, but really it's more about the issues and the incidents that led toward that very little known historical event in the early days of our country. Now, one of the things that I learned, I don't know that I knew, or if I had, I had not really given any consideration to, one of the factors that caused the unrest that led to the rebellion was a practice that began during the Revolutionary War and then culminated soon after. Because as the country was engaged, or the continent, or, or the colony was engaged in the, in the Revolutionary War from Britain, uh, they had not enough money to be able to pay the soldiers that were necessary to keep them as an armed force. And so in exchange for the services of the military duty, what the fledgling government was doing would offer notes or promissory notes or essentially IOUs to all of the soldiers for their salary, for the amount of time that they fought and bonuses, things like that. It was given to them in a note and much like the war bonds that were popular in later years, they were worth a certain amount at the time of issuing but if they were to be cashed in at a later time when they came to full maturity, they would be worth significantly more. So many people, many of the soldiers who fought for this nation's independence were paid in promissory notes. The problem was once the war was over with, the new government, the new country, didn't have enough income to pay off the notes that they had issued. And so while the notes were supposedly coming to maturity, the soldiers who had earned that as their only wage, neglected their farms, now were broke, families in danger of starving, and the only thing they had was this note that was valued at a certain amount, but they couldn't get that, which was essentially, at least at the moment, worthless. Some foresight, for, uh, people that had foresight, mostly those who were wealthy, elite, and able to, uh, to uh, sustain themselves, thought that they had an idea, and what they would do is they would promise to buy the notes from the soldiers who were now risking bank, for, uh, facing bankruptcy on pe pennies on the dollar of their mature value. Or, as a few enterprising people had done, as they had purchased large plots of land in southwestern Pennsylvania, and then they built up the area, telling these people who were along the East Coast that they would take their notes on their, ha on their behalf and they would exchange them significant amounts of acreage that they could go over and they could be able to start homesteading and have their own land. In that time, and for people who were uh, making their lives primarily agrarian, that was an appealing offer, and so many, many of these people exchanged those notes for land in southwestern Pennsylvania that they had visions of farming and thriving. Unbeknownst to them that the land that they were given was very rocky, and much of it was difficult to farm, and so for practical purposes was almost worthless. And yet, because they were beyond the mountains, they weren't able to get back, and they traded in their notes that eventually came to maturity. The people got wealthy on them, and these people were stuck out in western Pennsylvania before there were any mines that would enable them to make the money, before there was any culture in the city of Pittsburgh. It was just a, it was just a, a wasteland for the people that were out there, and that gave cause for their unrest. Now, as interesting as that was, and as bad of a deal as those people made to exchange what promised to pay them a significant sum of money for essentially wasteland, the Apostle Paul is saying that the Galatians were making a far worse and more foolish exchange. 
They were exchanging the freedom that they had been given through being purchased and given to them by Jesus Christ and exchanging that for becoming slaves all over again to religion and behavior and religious leaders. What had happened is, after Paul had shared the gospel, some people would come and started teaching in their Sunday school classes and their pulpits and their small group studies and teaching them that while Paul taught that grace, that all that was accomplished by Jesus Christ is necessary to salvation, that was only component A. But what was also necessary is for everyone, particularly these people who had been pagans or Gentiles, that they also needed to become Jewish and believe in Jesus Christ. They needed to follow the Mosaic law. They needed to believe and do and salvation consisted in that being just being made right before God consisted in being made right with God and in the process they also when people were pointing out what Paul had taught they began to deny Paul or diminish Paul belittle his apostolic calling some of them even claimed look I'm friends with Peter I'm friends with John this is what they told me Paul's good but you know it's just his opinion and they began to undercut the authority that the apostle Paul had and they began to teach the obedience of the law. In particular issue was the practice of circumcision as a necessity for anyone to be part of the household of God. Now the Apostle Paul was having none of that. In fact, he writes this letter to the Galatians, to the church, the people who were, he was saying, being deceived, in order to point out the foolishness of their behavior and to confront his opponents. In short, what Paul was doing here was he was picking a fight with the people who were in the church and talking about another situation in his life in which a fight was possible, but how that actually supports uh, the claims that he has made and undercuts the teachings of these, those people that Paul is calling false teachers, false brothers, or Judaizers. Now, the intensity of what Paul is doing here is somewhat surprising because some people think it's relatively minor of an issue. I mean, just... They're practicing circumcision. Even Paul says later on, look, circumcision, non-circumcision, that doesn't really matter. The issue is faith that expresses itself in love. And so why Paul is so intense about this issue, uh, people are confused. But intense he is. In fact, to understand kind of what Paul is doing here, it's probably helpful to consider a scene from the movie Braveheart. When you had the armies on both sides lined up of a field. And then the leaders, the nobles, would come out to negotiate. The, the people that were wealthy would negotiate a possible truth to avoid any possible battles. And while the negotiations were taking place, William Wallace walks, uh, rides out and begins to annoy the, uh, the, the people and then challenges them, insults them. And the reason he does that, he had told his friend when they said, where are you going? He says, I go to pick a fight. And fortunately, I don't have any ability to do a Scottish accent because it would be a much more powerful point if I had. But it's that exact same thing that the Apostle Paul is essentially doing here. And what he is, is doing, he's saying, I go, I went to Jerusalem to pick a fight, and now I'm writing this letter to you. I am essentially picking a fight. And the reason Paul was fighting is because of the foolishness of what was being exchanged for the sake of the people that he loved, he was willing to fight for the freedom that Christ had earned for them. The reason being is if you don't fight for freedom, you forfeit your freedom. And Paul understood that and he was passionate about that and he was willing to fight for the freedom of the people who weren't even trusting him at, at this point in time. And 20 times throughout this letter, Paul uses the word freedom because he's that passionate about what the gospel brings, that we should not forsake our freedom. 
Because Paul is using fighting language here, we're going to use fight language as we break our outline. And the first thing we need to see in verses 1 through 3 is Paul essentially, in picking a fight, he draws a line in the sand. In other words, he draws and said, here's the gospel, here's where I stand. Those of you who want to stand on the side of the gospel, you come on this side. Those of you who disagree, you go stand on that side. The lines were being drawn up and they were very clear as Paul, as Paul was preparing them. Now, part of what Paul was doing here was uh, making very clear that the teachers really didn't have a leg to stand on. Essentially, by writing this letter and citing his previous experience, as we read in these first few verses, about a time or a few years before he had gone to Jerusalem, he's undercutting the teachers who are trying to say, look, Paul teaches this, but you know, I'm a, I'm a friend of John's, and John says this. I'm a friend of Peter. Peter says this. Paul's essentially saying, you talk to who? Well, just so you know, I just talked with them, and they don't agree with you. Paul was being very confrontational as he's writing this in order to preserve the gospel. And what he writes to us, this is, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. He had been there before. Paul, after his conversion, went away for a while to be alone with Christ, to grow in grace and the knowledge of, uh, of the word in a way that he had not previously understood. And then he began ministry. He had gone to Jerusalem. But after 14 years, not probably from his previous visit, but 14 years after his conversion, he went again. So he'd been to Jerusalem again. Part of his point is, I didn't go up and get validated by other people, but nor am I separated from these other people. They don't validate me, but I am friends with them. I do know them. I do have interaction with them. After 14 years, I went back to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before me through um, the private, and then he picks, picking up after parenthesis here, um, just to make sure that the gospel I proclaim to the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running in vain. Now, some people will look at that and assume that Paul had some second thoughts. In other words, I've been going about my ministry for this length of time, been preaching this, and I've been seeing fruit, but maybe I'm wrong. So I better go to Jerusalem to find out what they're teaching to see if they're confirming what I am saying. I think to read it that way would be a mistake. It's understandable to, to, on its face value to say, look, I, I don't want my ministry to be in vain, and maybe I need to be clear about my message. But Paul went to Jerusalem because of a revelation, which tells us he was in communion with God. Paul tells us earlier that the message that he proclaims, he received directly from Jesus Christ. No man taught it to him. So the authority that he is claiming is because he doesn't need the affirmation of other people. He got the message directly from Jesus Christ. And he's so passionate about that that he says if anybody teaches the gospel other than what we taught to you, which came from Jesus, not from anybody else, then they can be cursed, condemned for eternity. That's language that you don't usually use when you're thinking, ah, oh, I'm not sure if I'm right. Paul was fully confident that the message he was proclaiming, the reason that he didn't want to run in vain is because as he is investing in people and sharing the gospel with them, seeing them go from death to life, if there is any reason for those who are hearing his teaching to believe that this is just Paul's doctrine, but Peter or John, they are a little different then it would be harder to maintain, to keep the disciples, not under his authority, but in the power of the gospel that he had proclaimed, if there was any other avenue. So he wasn't concerned about his message, but he just wanted to make sure that there was no avenue, that the other apostles were not opening the door for people to go out the back door of the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, as he goes to, uh, goes to Jerusalem to meet with them, 
And it's interesting if you consider his companions as he's drawing this line in the sand, because even his choice of companions is, a line, is part of the line in the sand. Now, Barnabas, we certainly would understand. Barnabas had been a believer before Paul was a believer. Barnabas was the one who most readily welcomed Paul into the church when everybody else was concerned that he was a terrorist in disguise that was coming to find out where they lived so that he could come and do them in while they were sleeping. Barnabas embraced him. Barnabas was well respected by the church universally. Barnabas' character is is, uh, shown throughout the book of Acts as a man who was gracious, a man who is generous, a man who is humble. And that was demonstrated even in his relationship with Paul. Because when they first began, as you look in Acts, it was Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was the leader. He was bringing Paul along until Paul had come to full bloom. But when that time had come, Barnabas was willing to shift from first chair to second chair. And then in the book of Acts, you read, it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And Paul set the direction and was the leader. Barnabas didn't have a problem with it. He didn't say, now you're ready, and, um, but you don't need me anymore. Through the fellowship, he continued on. Barnabas was Jewish, so everything was kosher. No problem as, uh, he, as he goes with them um, to Jerusalem. But there's an interesting language because they also took Titus. And what Paul says here is particularly interesting because uh, when he talks about his colleagues, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Makes sense. That's his ministry missionary partner. Taking Titus along with me. It's a different lingo. It's easy to overlook. But the implication here was it was a conscious decision. Well, it's understandable that Barnabas would go. And there's no problems anywhere Barnabas might go with Paul, particularly to Jerusalem. Taking Titus was a conscious choice that Paul said, I want him. I want this Greek young man who has been impacted by the gospel, believed it, become a follower of Jesus Christ. I want him to go with me. This guy who would probably not follow the law a day in his life and nevertheless was loved by God, a believer, a follower of Christ, and loved Jesus Christ because he recognized that Jesus Christ had loved him. Why Titus? Titus provides a couple of things. First, when Titus shows up, the argument or the discussion that Paul was going to have with the other disciples moved from theoretical into very personal. In other words, you can talk about all sorts of issues, but if there is a person who is dealing with that issue who is also in the room when you're talking about it, the tone of the conversation changes significantly. Our elders have spent some time talking about divorce as it's prevalent in our culture. What are the biblical parameters? Do we have understanding? Are we too restrictive? Are we too permissive? And we spent time talking about that, which has been very beneficial and helpful to us to be on the same page and to understand. But you know, it's an entirely different kind of conversation when somebody who has been broken, somebody whose marriage vows have been violated, comes before us and is just in their brokenness, in their heart, wondering, can they get a divorce? Should they get a divorce? Would they be in relationship with the church if they get a divorce? We can talk all day about theory, but when you see the person who's broken, the person who's impacted, it changes the tone entirely. Titus, having been one who had not been circumcised, as Paul indicates here, Titus being a living embodiment of the very issue that we're talking changes the conversation significantly. The second thing is, with Titus and Barnabas together, there's a living demonstration of what the gospel does and the gospel itself. Because it testifies that whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile, the only thing that matters is that you are trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, that is the only hope. That's the gospel, and here's the living proof that we are in community. 
This is what the gospel does and cannot be denied. And so there's a living picture of the gospel when Paul takes Titus along with him because it is a picture of that very thing that he's trying to, to experience. And Paul didn't get any pushback from the other apostles. But it is difficult for people to accept. Because even for us, it's difficult to accept in a practical level. We know what the gospel message says. And yet our views of God somehow are so easily skewed. I heard an older pastor one time talking about a man that I later found out was fictitious, but it made his point. He said, I knew this guy who, I know of this, or maybe knew of this guy who got fired at work. On his way home on a rainy day like this, he had a flat tire. Got out, fixed his flat tire, muddy, drives home only to find a note on the refrigerator from his wife saying she'd left him taking the kids and everything but the refrigerator. In despair and frustration and anger, he didn't know what to do, so he thought, I'm just going to get out of here. He leaves the empty house, got back into his car, and was out for a drive trying to clear his head, tried to take a curve in the rain, slipped over, car rolled, totaled, landed upside down. And as the man crawls out from his turned-over car, he cries out, Why me, Lord? And a voice from heaven said, I don't know, Joe. There's just something about you that ticks me off. Now, we know that's heresy. That's how you sneak heresy into a sermon. But we know that's heresy. And yet, most of us live with something like that of a concept of God. Our doctrine tells us this. Our emotions tell us something different. Paul knows it in our brokenness that we are so susceptible to embracing this idea that we need to earn our relationship with God and we need to merit it, that he is fighting and he puts a line in the sand for anybody that would teach that it's about us in our relationship with God. Because Jesus has already done everything necessary for us. And Paul is passionate about that. And so he's willing to fight. And he draws that line in the sand. There is the people who stand with the gospel. And there are people who stand against the gospel. Now the second thing we see in verses 4 and 5 is that the opponents of the gospel fight dirty. We said in the first service they tend to hit below the belt. Until somebody pointed out to me that that was even a better metaphor than I was thinking because he reminded me the issue of circumcision hitting below the belt. That didn't cross my mind at the time, but apparently it was appropriate. Because, But they do fight dirty. Because in verses 4 and 5 we see this. Yet because of false brothers uh, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they could bring us back into slavery. Paul's using language here that's not only inflammatory, but it's interesting. I mean, to me, it's language that I would expect to be over at uh, Camp Perry. I won't ask any of you who know, but I mean, it's talking about espionage and spying out and secrecy and, and deception. And we don't know exactly what had happened. But most scholars kind of surmise this. During the time that they were all in Jerusalem, you know, staying in the Holiday Inn, but there was community baths, or at least when they were working out in the gym, some of the people knowing that Titus was there, hearing that he was a Greek, suspecting but wanting to confirm, they snuck in and they checked him out while he was in the shower to find out whether or not he was circumcised. And they said, okay, not circumcised. Now we know what we were suspected. I'm not sure what they were going to do with that. I assume if they had asked Titus, he would have told them he wasn't. Paul wasn't hiding anything about him. But nevertheless, this is the way that they tend to operate in secrecy and deception, trying to gain information. The moralists of the day and people with agendas even today don't necessarily fight with, this, with great integrity. And Paul, as he's dealing with these people, is very clear about what they are like. And he says, these are false brothers. In other words, anyone who teaches Jesus plus 
anything is a false brother. And it was important for the Galatians to understand, just as it's important for us to understand, what makes somebody a false brother. Jesus plus anything is a false brother. Because there are always people around, whether they tell you that they're false brothers or tell you what their agenda is or not, that have their own agendas and will work secretly in order to make their agenda advance. And we just need to be aware. And sometimes they don't look like we would expect them to look. Sometimes they look exactly like us. I was reminded as I was thinking this week that during the time of the slave trade in Great Britain and the United States, it wasn't only the Europeans that were involved in that horrendous practice. Sometimes the English or the the mercenaries that were sent out to capture the slaves were actually helped by other Africans who themselves, rather than being enslaved themselves, would turn over their brothers that they would be enslaved. The reality is we need to be aware that no matter what somebody looks like, no matter what somebody sounds like, no matter what somebody says, we need to be clear as what they are saying as whether they are true or whether they are not because even the people who are closest to us, that should be closest to us, even the people who look like us, even the people who wear the name Christian at times will declare a message contrary to the one that was declared to the Galatians and they themselves are betraying their false brothers. Some of them are well-intended probably truly believers, but their message is false. Others couldn't care less. They have an agenda of their own. They have a message that sells books and TV shows and radio, and they will sell you anything in order for the power that they are going to gain. Whatever the motive may be, we need to be very clear about the gospel and what the gospel actually is, and that's what Paul's fighting for. And part of the reason we need to be very clear is because our understanding that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything, as opposed to Jesus plus anything equals slavery, is when we know the gospel, it serves as a filter for hearing when people teach. Because many of the people who are false teachers, particularly those who are well-intended, have a lot of good things to say. And if we understand what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, we can filter through the garbage, benefit from what is good. But the other reason is because we understand what the gospel actually is as opposed to what it isn't, we develop an immunity that we are not tempted and infected by the false message. We continue to have the freedom for which Paul is fighting. I also find that it's interesting here that Paul seems to demonstrate in his action that when the gospel's at stake, it's perfectly appropriate to fight back hard. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's got no gloves here. Now, I'm not suggesting that there should be a physical abuse, physical beating of people who are, uh, are preaching the wrong gospel. But spiritually and rhetorically, Paul minces no words, and he is very direct, and he is very forceful, very firm throughout this letter, and even in other letters, about the gospel and those who are trying to deceive others. And it's really interesting, as you consider Paul's approach to the people that he's trying to reach who oppose him, the people who stone him, the people who hate him, the people who are outside of the gospel, Paul's approach to those people is to continue to give his life for them that they might have the hope that he has. And he demonstrates for us that we shouldn't be surprised when people who are not believers oppose the message and maybe even be hostile to us. And that just as Christ demonstrated and declared to us that our approach to the people who hate us, who are outside of the gospel, is that we lay down our lives for them. That if we are able to engage in a conversation with them, it would be a conversation like this, saying, look, I understand that your worldview, your religion says we're different, therefore you need to oppose me, maybe even kill me. 
But my faith, my God tells me that because we're different, I need to love you and I need to die for you. Think about that. Which of them is more supernatural? I don't ask that only rhetorically for you and for me, but for the conversation itself, because it makes sense. There is a stark difference between what Christ is calling us to do in engaging the unbelieving world and what every other religion or worldview tries to do to one another and particularly to the believers. But when it comes to those who are claiming to be Christians and are taking up portions of the gospel and they are distorting it and warping it and watering it down, Paul pulls no punches. He goes full tilt, even as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and he says, if that's what you're going to do, you're, you're condemned. You are a false brother. And he goes right at them, tries to expose them as he undermines them. Because Paul recognizes this, is that when there is abuse Oppression is the abuse of human power. But a false gospel is the abuse of the power of God. Because as Paul teaches us, the gospel is the power of God for life for those who are believing, and it's the transforming power. And so we should expect that the people from the outside, they're just abusing human power, but when you're going to misuse God's power, Paul says that is an issue, and he puts his foot down. He will have none of it. And so Paul fights, and he undercuts these people. Now, Paul, having already waged his fight, it's interesting if we're moving ahead a little bit, and every fight eventually comes to an end. In one sense, the fight continues today, and Paul's the benefit of that. But what are the results that we can expect, assuming that we side with Paul, benefit from the message of the gospel as God gave it to him? We see in Paul certain characteristics that he works, that God works in those who are believing the gospel. One of the first ones, certainly not the most important, but nevertheless practically important is this, is that we recognize that the gospel is greater than celebrity. Paul says, Peter, James, John, I don't care who they are. Now, he wasn't in any way dissing them. He wasn't dismissing or diminishing their importance. He's just saying those who seemed important, that doesn't matter to me. The only thing that matters is the gospel itself. And Paul demonstrates that the the Christians who are more concerned with the message of the gospel than the opinions of celebrity Christian leaders, that's one of the ways in which they're free. And it's important for us because the way that our culture functions and the way that unfortunately even much of the church seems to be functioning is this if you have an agenda if you have an issue whether it is a moral agenda or a political agenda or um, just a practical agenda the way it seems to work is get as many well-known influential people as you can that side on your side to give public testimonies and then we can sway public opinion as if the more people or the most influential people whatever they say that's what determines right and wrong And what Paul would be saying to us today is, I don't care what the issue is, and I don't care if Tim Keller, John Piper, and John MacArthur all come out on side of it. If they are not declaring what is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then don't listen to a word they have to say. Celebrity means nothing. It is nothing as compared to the gospel. Christians who are aware of the gospel and the glory of the gospel and enchanted with the gospel are not particularly likely to succumb to the influences of celebrity. 
They will weigh the words of anybody. Another characteristic we see is that God creates community. It's interesting here because Paul takes the colleagues that he was in community with, and he goes to Jerusalem, and he connects his community with the community that existed in Jerusalem. Why? Well, one of the reasons is over and over again in the scripture, we're told that the gospel doesn't just create a bunch of individuals, but the gospel creates community, and those who have been impacted by the gospel long for community with others who have also been made part of the community. We love and we need one another in order to grow. And this particular community is interesting because it's diverse. I mean, Paul and Barnabas, Jewish, just like all of the, uh, of the um, apostles, but, you know, one had been a terrorist in their past. They'd all come from different places. They had different uh, relationships, different experiences, and one of the guys that's brought in is totally unlike them in any way. And yet, the right hand of fellowship was extended, it does say, to Paul and Barnabas, but they were the leaders, and if there would have been a problem, they would have pointed out there was a problem with Titus. And Paul making Titus such an inclusive part of his group, they would not have extended right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas if Titus was not also to be allowed part of that. And it's a reminder to us that when the gospel is at work, God breaks down every wall that would separate us in every other circumstance. The community of the church, the community of Christ people, the people that God gathers through the gospel are connected because of what Jesus has done and Jesus alone and no other barrier should keep us separated. And it speaks to us. Because it should beg, uh, beg the question from us, then am I part of that community? And the answer is simply this, is if you are in Christ Jesus, you are part of that community as well. Just like everybody else who is trusting in Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the only requirement to be in the community of God. And that nobody should put up any barriers other than, in Paul's point of the gospel, nobody should put up any other barriers except for the gospel to determine what Christian community is and what Christian community is not. We see it cultivating a character as well. I won't touch on these simply for the sake of time and great length, but we see honesty that Paul is demonstrating. In other words, there's no hidden agenda. He's not trying to puff himself up when he goes to Jerusalem and saying, hey, check out my conversion numbers. How did you do last year? Paul says, look, I went for a reason, a revelation from God. I had a concern that could be potentially divisive in the church of Jesus Christ. And so I went to, the, to them and I told them exactly what my concern was, exactly what I was doing, and wanted to know exactly what they were doing so that we could talk about this. It's total honesty, total transparency. We see courage. I mean, Paul may not have been impressed with Peter and James and John, but they were pretty powerful and they were certainly very popular. And it would have been what would have happened had they rejected him. His influence would have diminished even if he was carrying the right message. And so his willingness to go and his willingness to take Titus, knowing that the fight was against a principle, not against those people, but he was willing and encouraged to do what was unpopular for the sake of the gospel. And we even see humility in the Apostle Paul because he said, look, I showed them what I preached. He laid out for them exactly what he was teaching, exactly his exact ministry. And by laying it out, he was inviting them to take it apart and to examine it and tell them where he was wrong. And that's a hard thing to do. Those of you who are writers, those of you who are artists, once you're done, whatever it is you're creating, those who preach, to lay everything out and then let people have at it. That is a difficult, difficult thing to do. But Paul, in his humility, was willing to allow them. He didn't come justifying himself. He said, this is what I'm doing. And there's clear humility. The character that the gospel cultivates in God's people. 
is not limited to the Apostle Paul, but it's consistent through all who understand what God is doing through the power that he's given in the gospel. And finally, we also see that the gospel compels compassion. We see this in verse 10. Only they asked, after they extended the right hand of fellowship, they only asked that we would remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It almost seems like a tag-on at the end here. Like it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of what Paul's agenda was. And then it would also be easy to be confused here because doesn't that sound kind of like, okay, we're clear on the gospel and as you're out the door, oh, by the way, don't forget the poor. Well, isn't that a work kind of thing? If it was, you know that Paul would be railing against it and this letter wouldn't be so short. But what Paul understood and the other apostles understood because Paul said, look, it's the very thing I wanted to do. I've already been doing this. The reason that the apostles just reminded them of that is because compassion is the inevitable outcome of those who have been recipients of compassion. It's simply living consistent with the gospel that they had received. It's not an add-on, but it's just living in that way. Those who have received what they did not deserve, what they could not earn, who have been enriched by the riches of Christ in something that they cannot earn or pay back, inevitably are amazed in such a way that their hearts break for other people who are impoverished and who are in need, and they willing to give of themselves. That is the characteristic of the gospel that cultivates in all of God's people. And so Paul says it's not just a matter of doctrinally believing, it's a matter of letting the gospel be at work within you because that will change you, it will challenge you, but it will do that when it is the gospel, not the law. And so Paul's passionate about this very message as we'll hear over and over again through this letter. I want to finish with just this. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King holiday. It's a relatively new holiday, written into law by Ronald Reagan in 1983 and first observed in 1986. And while it is focused on the individual who was very arguably the most significant leader of the civil rights movement toward the end of the actual legalization of equality. I think that Dr. King is simply representative of a much bigger picture. And it's recognized because we, we see that it's important to remember stain upon our culture. But what Dr. King did was not in a vacuum in the few years that he was ministering. I mean, it was 1965 before the, Lyndon Johnson put the voters' rights in. It was 1963 when King gave his I Have a Dream speech. But it was 1863 when Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, meaning there was over 100 years between the time of declaring free and the experience of being freedom. And the reason that this is significant for us is because we need to realize that it is easy to declare freedom. It is another thing entirely to experience it. And many of us have a doctrine that says we are free, but our lives don't feel like it. And we need to recognize the declaration, our doctrine, while it may be true, may be right, may be legal, if we are not experiencing the power of the gospel in our lives and we are doing the very thing that Paul's fighting that people don't do is plumbing ourselves back in, submitting ourselves back into slavery. Yesterday, Carolyn and I had an opportunity to go to 
see the movie Selma, which we had been wanting to do. The film that's recounting the 1965 march from Selma uh, to Montgomery, Alabama. And it got me thinking when the movie was over, and you don't really have to have seen the movie to be able to answer my question. But the theater was filled with both black and white couples and singles. And I began to wonder, can you imagine any African-American that was sitting in that theater at the end of that movie <laughs> thinking to themselves, regardless of the difficulties that we continue to have in our culture, I wish I was back in 1963 when I might be declared legal but I had no rights. That's ridiculous. Can you imagine any African-American in that theater coming out of that movie saying, I wish I was back in 1862 when I truly would be legally enslaved? It's absolutely ridiculous. It's preposterous. Nobody is going to do that. And we recognize the, how preposterous an idea is. But the problem with that is it is the very thing that every Christian who adds anything to the gospel does day in and day out. When we allow our petty preferences to be added to what Jesus has done, we diminish what Christ has done, we put ourselves back into slavery, and not only us, but we enslave every person who we influence who feels the weight of pressure to conform to our choice of schools or clothing or political agenda. When we add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not only going back into slavery, we are causing others to go in slavery as well. It is ridiculous, it is foolish, it is evil. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul is fighting against. And with all due respect to Dr. King, I have a dream too. And my dream is of a people, of a congregation that are so passionate and so enamored with the person of Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us, they wouldn't dare think of belittling what he has accomplished on our behalf by adding to the message as if he was not enough. And I have a dream of a people and a congregation that are so intoxicated with that message of grace and the freedom that they've experienced that they are infected and contagious and will create an epidemic not only through congregations but through this town, our neighbors and to the nations. Because the power of the gospel is what gives life. And Dr. King's dream was noble because he was looking at what is right and what was reality and saying, this is my dream. My dream is exactly what God has promised. Because he says the gospel is at work and it is bearing fruit among you even as it is around all of the world. It is the power of God for life, for salvation, for transformation, for everything. And God has said, not only is it bearing fruit, but I will see it through to the end until every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We need to be a people who are committed to the gospel and the gospel alone it's not that your agendas and your school choices and your clothes, that there's wrong. They are important parts of our daily life. But we have the freedom to be a variety of these things. But when they get added and we enslave people, we are diminishing the gospel. We are taking freedom away from people. But when we are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are committed, we are declaring that we are people committed to fighting for freedom. Because if you don't fight for freedom, you lose your freedom. May God be at work in us through Paul's words and by his spirit. Father, help us to enjoy the freedom you have given us and to be your ambassadors of freedom to the nations. I pray in Christ Jesus and for his sake.